It's 6 o'clock. It's Wednesday evening. It's the Mark Riley Show. It's me, Mark Riley. Glad you're with us on this Wednesday evening. Lots of stuff going on in the world, and we're going to try to get to all of it, at least all the stuff that I picked. Uh, this was one of those days and, uh, you know, last, uh, what, 24, 48, 72 hours when a lot of stuff went on. You know, we got snowed on a couple times, got frigid, turned uh, the roads and the streets into holiday on ice. It's been it's been a little difficult over these last few days. Today we got a bit of a respite weather-wise, but tomorrow there's some more snow supposed to be coming. It's supposed to get cold again. <sighs> now, I was in the city last night when I heard the distressing, and I mean extremely distressing news, about that crash up in Valhalla between the Metro North train and uh, a car that had somehow ventured onto the tracks at a grade crossing. Six people are dead, 12 people injured, 10 of them seriously. This means, for those of you who don't know this, it means additional scrutiny on Metro North. You may remember, Jason, do you remember, was it last year? When a train that was speeding around a corner derailed and four people died. Uh, Metro North doesn't have the world's greatest track record. Of course, the uh, NTSB, the National Transportation Safety Board, is going to be all over this like a chief suit. The investigation is already underway. They may find that it was just a tragic accident, that the driver of the car who's uh, been identified, I believe, is Ellen Brody, uh, that, that she just didn't realize until it was too late that she had driven onto the track. In fact, there's a report that says that the guy that was behind her actually put it in reverse and moved backwards in an effort to try and give her enough room to get back and out of harm's way. How that didn't happen is going to be for the NTSB to uh, investigate. I've always thought that grade crossings were kind of a relic of a bygone era and that the way people drive today, the way trains run today, they ought to find a better way to intersect with roadways other than crossings at ground level. Maybe below, maybe above. They could build an arc over, over a roadway. It's not a million, no, I guess it is a million, several million dollars. But what price? Safety. What price? The, the, the kind of loss of life that we saw happen here. And I'm not saying, you know, that it's way too early and probably extremely counterproductive and disrespectful to the families of those who lost their lives to jump up and say, whose fault is this? It's, it's, it's not about that. It really isn't about that. On to some other stuff. Hey, Jason, you watched the Super Bowl, right? Interesting game. Very interesting game. I forgot. That was last Sunday. 
and uh, went to a Super Bowl party. Now, I know y'all have gone over to commercials and whatever, but I have to say, I was not impressed with Katy Perry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I never have been. And the Super Bowl halftime show she created didn't change my mind. I, Jason, were there any musicians there? I mean, other than Lenny Kravitz and, I mean, Missy Elliott, you know. Oh, there was some in the background? I don't know. I, I was just waiting, you know, maybe give, a, give, a, give the drummer some or something. But it was like this, uh, the Katy Perry spectacular. Eh, doesn't matter. The game was interesting. New England Patriots pulled it out at the end, and they were lucky. They were lucky Pete Carroll made what is universally being called the worst play call in modern football history. I think that's what Emmett Smith called it. Now, of course, nobody would have said anything. Jason, would anybody have said anything if that guy had caught the ball and gone into the end zone? They'd have just said, well, touchdown, <laughs> you know. But because it got intercepted, because somebody saw it and pushed the guy out of the way and grabbed the ball, oh, it's the most boneheaded call. Get out of here. I don't know. I don't know what sports talk radio is going to talk about now. Uh, I guess they're going to lead up to the NFL draft or whatever. But just like the football season is repetitive in that its structure is the same from year to year. The players change. Some people get suspended. The team that wins the Super Bowl may change. But the basic structure of the NFL is the same year to year. So it is in the United States House of Representatives, where Jason, get this now, the House has voted to repeal the Affordable Care Act for the 56th time. Now, having failed the previous 55 times, you might ask yourself, like, why bother? And at least three Republicans said why bother because they voted against the repeal with the Democrats. The vote was 239 to 186. Three Republicans, Robert Dodd, I'm sorry, Dold of Illinois, John Katko from upstate New York, and Bruce Paulquin of Maine all voted against the bill that would have repealed the Affordable Care Act. Maybe they got some sense. Maybe they understand that this is a futile and useless exercise. Do you know, Jason, do you know what the rationale for Boehner, that, that Boehner and them gave for taking this vote in the first place? Uh, the Republicans say that the vote was necessary to give new House members a chance to take a stand on the health law. <laughs> Hi, come on in. Vote on the health care law. Now, some of the people who are coming in, the freshmen, were the most vociferous in favor of repealing the law. Now, please don't get me wrong. Don't get it twisted. The Affordable Care Act is not perfect. Humankind is not perfect. I would have preferred to see a universal lowering of Medicare, Medicare for everybody, which would have essentially been single-payer. Whoa, single payer. Hey, does that make me a commie, Jason? You know, because some people say that anybody who supports single payer or anybody who supports the public option is a socialist communist cur. And is trying to upset the natural order of American governance. It's nonsense. 
course, I just made that last part up. But it's still nonsense. That's what we should have. And it may be that the, you know, the next incremental steps toward that will happen with the next president or the president after that, assuming we get some people with some sense in the White House. And we get some sense in the Congress. Which, by the way, doesn't necessarily mean the Democrats have to take it over again. Because Democrats have, have, have shown to me, and, and, and mind you, I'm a Democrat. But the Democrats have shown to me that they don't really know how to handle being in the majority. They just don't. The Republicans, you see what they did. They want to get rid of Obamacare 56 times they vote on it. All 56 times, by the way, it passed. Their bill to repeal the Affordable Care, it passed. Now, it may have been an exercise in futility, but at least they know what their agenda is. Democrats in the House and Senate, for my money, all too often get cold feet, get nervous, get scared. They get scared of their seats. They get scared of their donors. They get scared of everybody, scared of their shadows. But, hey, you know what? Let them do it for 57. Then it can be like Heinz ketchup <laughs> or Heinz, uh, Heinz 57 varieties. Obama's going to veto it even if it gets through the Senate. And the Congress doesn't have, they don't have enough votes to over, override his veto. So they know what they're doing is stupid, but they continue to do it. Mayor Bill de Blasio, State of the City Address, which would be Gracie Mansion, <laughs> New York, New York. But he laid out a vision. He laid, laid out what, what for me was a pretty interesting vision, an ambitious vision. Even if it is light on the details, it, you know, President Obama kind of sort of does the same thing, lays out an expansive vision, but doesn't really put a whole lot of meat on the bones. So people know exactly which way this stuff is going to go. For example, the, the mayor's talking about some serious, serious affordable housing construction, but he didn't say where the money was going to come from to make this happen. Now, maybe he could pull a rabbit out of his hat. It would be nice if he could. But uh, the one thing for me, the one thing I got out of, out of this state of the city is that Cuomo and de Blasio, Cuomo being the governor of our great state, Cuomo and de Blasio are still fighting. Why would I say such a thing? Why? Two hours after the mayor said he wanted to build affordable apartments over the Sunnyside Yards, a spokesperson for the governor rejected the idea, saying the yards were not available for any other use in the near term, unquote. Now, mayoral people, de Blasio's people, said Amtrak, which actually owns much of the depot, was open to the plan. So who's right? Now, the other thing was that the mayor wanted the minimum wage here in New York to rise to 13 bucks an hour. The governor, now mind you, he didn't say this stuff. It came out of his office, which means it came from him, but he didn't really sell the wolf tickets himself. But he said 13 bucks an hour is a non-starter. I think he had argued for 11.50 for the city, mind you. I think it may have been lower for upstate and 
you know, environs. So the, 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 the beef between de Blasio and Cuomo, which kind of was heightened by the rather ugly thing over charter schools when the governor showed up at a rally in Albany for charter schools, like the Avenging Angel or something. Uh, that's counterproductive. They're both Democrats. One is obviously more progressive than the other. But, I mean, can't you guys work together, yo? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, can't you guys, like, straighten this kind of thing out so that the mayor's not proposing something that two hours later the governor's office says cannot happen? That's crazy. Be crazy in New York, crazy in New Jersey. More on Jersey shortly. We, we're not letting old Chris Christie go. That's for sure. Now, ladies and gentlemen, before we go to a very special guest who's going to talk about the deposed Assembly Speaker Sheldon Silver, whose fate was chronicled right here on this program, uh, there is in Manhattan, and, and this kind of shows you, what you how far you have to bend over to the real estate interests in this town in order to get affordable housing built, supposedly, all right? There is a penthouse on 57th Street. It's called 157. The area is now being called Billionaire's Row in Midtown Manhattan, all right? There's a, the penthouse of this place is $100.5 million. $100.5 million dollars. And guess who's paying the property tax bill? Jason, take a wild guess who's paying the property tax bill on this $100 million joint. Yes, you. Yes, me. Yes, the taxpayers of New York. That's right. This is through the 421A program, which was not originally intended when it came into existence in the 70s to subsidize $100 million joints. Wasn't supposed to do that. But it does now. In point of fact, and, and here's the interest. This is how, you know, you take one step up and two steps back. Okay. Uh, in 2013, uh, the 421A program built 157, I'm sorry, 150,000 new apartments at a cost of a billion dollars. Jason, take a wild guess. Out of those 150,000, how many were considered affordable? Here you go. 12,748 out of 150,000, less than 10%. Now, what's interesting about that is when you consider that New York loses 11,000 affordable apartments every year to deregulation, then it's pretty much a wash, 12,000 to 11,000. So you get a net of 1,000. Oh, oh. And we're helping to pay the property taxes for this place? Why do luxury, maybe somebody can help me with this. Why do luxury developers need our help at all? All right, why? Is there a logical reason that somebody can come up with? Now, we're getting ready to talk to our guest. Um, and he's 
Okay, he's there. He's with us. He is right on our line. He is the legendary investigative reporter in this great city of ours, Mr. Wayne Barrett. Wayne, how you doing, buddy? Uh, Mark, you're still waging class warfare over there. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm trying. I'm trying. Yes, yes. Yeah, well, because well, I have you know, no... You know, you know what the good congressman calls that? What? Envy economics, man. You are into envy economics. I, see, I don't want a million dollars. I don't want a hundred million dollar joint. First of all, it's a penthouse. I'm scared of heights. <laughs> so that's number one. <laughs> so, but Wayne, let's get to, down to business here. And thank, first, thank you so much for being with us. It's always well, great to have you. It's always great to be with you, Mark. Now, you wrote a story in the Daily News. Mm-hmm. It seems to have kicked up a firestorm. It's headlined, Sheldon Silver's Gang, How Longtime Friends of the Disgraced Assemblyman Got Power Positions. Let's talk about the structure of Sheldon Silver's power, which goes beyond just money. And then we can talk after that a little bit about why everybody's all upset about this piece. Well, yeah, the piece really goes into his history. It's a, you know, it's a... It's a, sort of a biography of him in a short piece because all of the connections that are popping up now in the criminal case against him that popped up in the criminal case against Willie Rapfogel, who ran the charity that that uh, Speaker Silver was most generous to called the Metropolitan Council on Jewish Poverty, all of the characters in these two criminal enterprises, uh, you know, are, are, are rooted in Grand Street. You know, the the co-ops down there on Grand Street, it's like 14,000 units or something that that actually a federal court found discriminated. I think it's the only project in Manhattan that you could say this about. The federal courts found that they discriminated against blacks and Latino applicants for years. You know, the new speaker couldn't even... Couldn't even get an apartment on Grand Street. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! Yes, yes no, I wouldn't be allowed in. But uh, so you know, the clock has changed, right? You oh go yeah. From, you go from a Grand Street speaker to to Carl Hasty. But anyway, I just you know, the piece is an examination of these layers of relationships off of his Grand Street life. I mean, let's just take two, all right? I mean, sure. the two most powerful right now, the chief judge of the uh, Court of Appeals, the most powerful judge in the state of New York, was a neighbor of his, sat near him in synagogue, grew up with him. The You're talking Shelley, about Jonathan Lippman. Jonathan Lippman. Yeah. You know, Shelley says they met at the age of six. When Jonathan Lippman was inducted, he called Shelley my family, right? And yeah. part of the Grand Street crowd. And then you have um, Merrill Tisch, who is the, uh, the chair of the Board of Regents, the chancellor of the New York State school system. And, uh, and, and she also grew up on Grand Street. Now, she was about 10 years younger than the male parts of this crew, and she mm-hmm. didn't really meet silver until later in life but she was all kinds her family was all kinds of intertwined with judy rapfogel the wife of willie rapfogel who i just mentioned and who ran this 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 charity that he stole nine million dollars from and they you know when they go to arrest him they raid his apartment and they they find four hundred thousand dollars in cash in his bedroom which which judy rapfogel said oh i didn't know my husband was running around with 400000 in cash. I didn't know that. You know, mm-hmm. you know, this was the household, Mark, where, you know, she would say to, 
to Willie in the morning, and I'm making a joke. I'm going to the store. You got an extra hundred grand? <laughs> <laughs> Pick me up a few things, all right? Yeah. I mean, you know, Wayne, it's amazing um, because certainly a lot of people in politics uh, have longtime friends that they've had over the years, sometimes going back to childhood or whatever. But it seems like this interlocking web that you chronicle here, uh, they've all benefited, theoretically, from associating with and being friendly with Sheldon Silver. Well, just take the, you know, there are two basic scams in the indictment. One of them involves the reduction of prime Manhattan real estate, exactly the kind of residential towers that you were just talking about in connection with the 421A program. In fact, probably almost all of the major properties that this company owned by Leonard Litwin, who's 100 years old, uh, its company is called Glendale. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, and they own a tremendous amount of very wealthy uh, Manhattan projects and or and and they wanted tax reductions. They wanted reductions in their property taxes. So Silver suggested to their lobbyists, well, why don't they hire this uh, law firm, this very tiny law firm, just two partners. It turns out that the the founder of the firm grew up with Shelley on Grand Street and uh, is just, you know, Jay Goldberg, J. Arthur Goldberg. So, Hmm. you know, then these developers start hiring them at, at this law firm to get their taxes reduced at the urging of Shelley and uh, Litwin being the biggest. And, uh, and, and Shelley gets a piece of every fee they pay this Goldberg law firm. So, and then at the same time, he's supporting. In fact, the 421A program is mentioned by name in the criminal complaint filed against Shelley. Wow. Because that was one of the things that they were trying to, that has to be reapproved every few years. And it came up in 2011 at the very time that this law firm uh, is starting to get business through Shelley and they're hiring the right, uh, uh, the right law firm to help them with the reductions. So, uh, the 421A program is used as an example by U.S. Attorney Preet Bahari in the criminal complaint of the kinds of favors that he did in return in his public capacity. Now, Wayne, uh, the stuff you chronicle in this piece uh, now goes back at least a decade, in some cases even further than that. Yes. What I don't understand is, like, how does this go on for so long? What is essentially influence peddling and favor trading and and whatever else that that the U.S. attorney may have indicted him for. But what I don't understand is how come no one's blown the whistle on this? Was he so powerful that everybody just sort of said, well, it's how he does business. Who's going to argue with him? Well, you know, as I said, there are two basic scams here. The real estate scam is not something we could have known because he failed to disclose any of his income on any of the public filings that he got from the second law firm. Mm-hmm. It was never named anywhere in any of his financial disclosures, which is part of the indictment. That's a violation of law. And now the other one everybody's known about for years, which is this firm Weitz and Luxembourg, which is the most powerful firm in New York and maybe in America, in asbestos cases, mm-hmm. makes hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions, over the course of years, uh, in these asbestos lawsuits. They're all over TV. You yeah, see the that, ads that, every day. Right. That's right. And that firm 
he was known to be uh, a uh, of counsel to that law firm, and he would report on his financial disclosure statements that he that he had that position. Nobody knew until very recently how much money he was making there, uh, because there was no requirement that it be disclosed. There was a change of law a couple years ago that made it much more specific as to how much money he was making, and suddenly we realized he was making six hundred and fifty, seven hundred thousand dollars a year uh, working for that uh, for the law firms. Was he working? Well, no, no. <laughs> I'm just asking. No, no. You know, that's one of the funniest parts of the criminal complaint is that they say they did all all these complete searches and they could only find one case where his name ever appeared on the court papers. And even in that case, he never appeared in court and did anything. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, he's, you know, he's he's never practiced law unless you consider it, you know, the, the the alleged sale of his office to acquire a legal business, uh, the practice of law. Oh, uh, wow. he, yeah. He, but now, Wayne, I, I got to ask you this: um, uh, Carl Hasty comes in, yeah, and says, "Look, we're going to change things. We're going to, you know, more accurate uh, reporting of outside income, limits on per diems, even though there were questions about his." Um, can Carl Hasty really change this, or will? the Albany culture changed Carl Hasty. Well, I don't know how much he has to change. Look, he got there through people like Stanley Schlein and, you know, who yeah. was his campaign manager. I don't know. You know, I, I, I read the stories just as you did today and was astonished to find that his mother, shortly before she died, pled guilty to stealing $170,000 from one of the Larry Seabrook um uh, uh, non-profits in the Bronx, uh, and that he was the treasurer, Hasty himself, Hasty himself was the treasurer mm-hmm. of the very non-profit that Larry Seabrook is now in jail uh, for looting. And so, you know, it's not like this guy, Carl, is, you know, comes from uh, uh, from heaven here. He hasn't, uh, he's, you know, he's been in a very, very tough county. Now, no, there's never been, I want to make this very clear, I, I know of no criminal activity. I've never read about any or heard about any that he has been engaged in. Mm-hmm. But he has been surrounded throughout a fairly muted political camp uh, career in which he really, he became the county leader in the Bronx in 2008. And I guess we sort of were aware of him after that. But very little is known about him. He's a very, very low-key player. He used uh, to teach math somewhere, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. He, he has an MBA, uh, and he is, uh, you know, apparently, uh, I, I read somewhere, solved the Cubics, cu- uh, Cubics Cube, is that what you call it? Oh, Rubik's it? Cube, yeah. Rubik's Cube, yes. You know, in a minute or something, when he was first-handed, it, he apparently has a great mind for math, which will be very good in the budget negotiations. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's it's a wait-and-see attitude, but I, I'll i tell you, I think it was entirely wrong for the Assembly to move so rapidly in installing him, and I think it may be great that we have a black speaker, but the first black majority leader of the Senate is on trial in White Plains right now. So that ain't a great step. <laughs> if, uh, you know, if there are all these serious questions... And I think we know very little about the guy. They should have taken some time. Uh, they should have seriously vetted the guy before they make him a speaker. And, uh, 
you know, we'll wait and see. We'll see what happens here. But there's, there's a lot of smoke, but there's no fire. Now, Wayne, uh, how do you think he's going to get along with Governor Cuomo? Because, uh, you know, uh, Shelley Silver and Andrew Cuomo managed to make their accommodations over a, a succession of budgets. Uh, but uh, it, it's pretty well known that Carl Hasty was not Andrew Cuomo's first choice. They say he might have been Mayor de Blasio's first choice. But uh, Andrew Cuomo wanted the guy from upstate, Morell, right? Yeah, I think he preferred Morell, but I, I think... Uh, you know, and I, I'm pretty sure of this. I've looked at this. I've talked to people who know, and uh, he's always gotten along with he- Hasty because, not because of Hasty's assembly position, mm-hmm. but because he's a county leader. And like any Democratic governor with a populous borough like the Bronx, uh, Cuomo has maintained good relationships with uh, with Hasty. Has named judges. Uh, elevated judges that Hasty wanted to the appellate division. You know, I, I think they have a uh, have a good working relationship. It could break down over some of these education issues in this budget year. Uh, the governor seems to be quite serious about a variety of education reforms. The teachers' unions are fiercely opposed to it. The teachers' unions are the largest single finance, uh, uh, financial contributors uh, to the Democratic conference and the assembly. So he's he's you know he's got some tough issues to deal with there. Uh, but um, I think he has a good working relationship with the governor. Was he the governor's first choice? Unlikely. But, I, I, you know, like Kathy Nolan was the competition, mm-hmm. and Kathy Nolan doesn't even have a working, talking relationship with the governor. Uh, Hasty definitely does. Okay. And, and he, he has it because, you know, it has very little to do with his assembly position. It has to do with his county leadership. County leadership position. Now, I was going to ask you about that, and folks, our guest is the legendary investigative reporter, Mr. Wayne Barrett. Uh, he has an, announced publicly, has Carl Hasey, that he's stepping aside as county chair. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you hearing anything? I, I keep reading these things about the rumbles of a fight between a couple of Latino legislators and uh, Jeff Dinowitz up in Riverdale. Uh, is there going to be a bloodletting up there in the Bronx over who succeeds Carl Hasty? I doubt it. I, I doubt it. He's the speaker of the assembly. He's going to decide who succeeds him, and everybody's going to fall in line. I think that's going to happen. I don't see anybody rebelling against the new speaker of the New York <laughs> State Assembly. No. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, you, yeah. You, you but hear... I, I I hear the same thing you do about a competition that's going on. It's not like, but once once Hasty makes it clear who he wants there, I think it'll happen. Final quick question. Uh, what now for Shelley Silver? Obviously, he's got to defend himself against these charges. I, I, uh, I, unlike many other criminal cases, I have no idea how long, how much time he would be facing were he to be convicted. But let's leave that aside for a moment. Right now, he's still in the New York State Assembly. Um, how do you think his colleagues are going to deal with him now? I was, I have to say, uh, Wayne, I was startled. I did this show. I think the day after he was indicted Mm -hmm. and all of the democratic members of the assembly were behind him a hundred percent. All right. Uh, by the following week, they were calling for him to step down and we all know what happened after that. How are they going to end up treating him? You think, is he going to be a pariah? It's not like there haven't been other people facing charges in the assembly. And in fact, in the Senate. 
Well, a few answers here. First of all, we don't know how much time he's facing because he hasn't been indicted yet. Oh, this is only, okay. is only a criminal complaint that's been filed. It does not specify what counts they're going to indict him on, and so we can't possibly know the term in prison that he'll be facing. Ah. Uh, <clears throat> then, uh, secondly, um, I don't think he's going to be a pariah at all. He supported Hastie's appoint, uh, election. He, um, uh, he, he is a significant player. Uh, as I said in the Daily News piece that you alluded to, I think the interesting thing will be how does he pay for his defense? And um, Yeah, because Barrara froze, what, $4 million? Well, yeah, Barrara froze $4 million that he had in eight different bank accounts. He has a little over $3 million in his campaign account, and he has been paying Strook, Strook, and Levan, the law firm that's representing him on this criminal case. He's been paying them since May of 2013. Uh, so he's already expended a considerable amount of money from his campaign kitty for them. Now that he's, he's, the criminal complaint has been filed, then he, he may do exactly what Willie Rapfogel did which was to create a defense fund that doesn't have to report anywhere. And so, and, you know, it doesn't have to disclose a nickel it gets or how it spends it. And uh, so I see him, I, I, I think that's going to happen. Uh, obviously, I don't know that. He could continue to finance his defense from the $3 million he has left in the campaign account. But I see in the long haul him preferring to have an account where there's no disclosure, mm-hmm. and uh, and sitting up there uh, as a guy who's got a lot of IOUs uh, and maybe has some potential influence over the sitting speaker, I, I see him as a guy who will be a collection agent from anybody who hopes that he won't flip. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you mean it, it could get worse for other yeah, people up yeah, there? That's right. Oh, so Ooh. I see him as having. You know, I think he's going to do a box off his business, raising money for his own defense. And, um, uh, you know, that's that's worth watching in the future to the degree Absolutely. we can watch it. But uh, it's he's he's I don't expect him ever to run again uh, in the Lower East Side. So he's got two years in office, uh, just reelected. And he rides off into the sunset. Yeah, then I think, you know, he'll by then he'll either have been convicted or acquitted. Uh, and uh, But I just don't see him going back for another term, another even term. if he's acquitted at the age of 73, 74, and going back for another term. You know, the, the funny thing about Silver is all this money he's amassed. He also had $2.5 million in stocks. Now, this is a guy who really had no job that we know of <laughs> other than an assemblyman making about 120,000 a year and he's got 6.5 million between his stock and these eight bank accounts that we now know about and um <clears throat> so uh I, I i i he never spent much he had a yeah. very very uh you know he has a home upstate that's not a very expensive house he kept the apartment on Grand Street that he's lived in all his adult life, you know, and he, he so he didn't have some, you know, it, it, it's been reported over the years that he would deliberately fly 
from Albany um, great distances just to increase his miles. <laughs> what the per diem? Yeah, no, no, the, not the per diem to to get himself more free. Oh, and, frequent flyer miles. Frequent flyer miles. Yes. Oh, wow. And he would fly all the way through Philadelphia. He'd fly here and he'd fly there just to increase his frequent flyer miles. Wow. And, you know, I there's a legendary story that I heard from somebody that he met him in the airport and they get on the plane together. They knew each other. They're sitting next to each other and the stewardess comes by and gives, you know, gives uh, Shelley a bag of peanuts. And the friend says, passes on the peanuts and the stewardess moves up the uh, moves up the aisle and Shelly looks at him cold-blooded eyes and says take the peanuts <laughs> <laughs> wait i gotta ask you one more yeah. uh why has this story that you wrote become so controversial who, who who's got a problem with it i mean i can see shelly silver maybe having a problem with it but well why is it kicking up so much sand well you know uh, the chief judge is still the chief judge and you know, lots of folks there were affected by it, and it's uh, it's the Grand Street crew is a powerful crew. It's it's a dying crew, you know. The, you, blacks and Latins can move in there nowadays. It's getting to be a it's getting to be a much more mixed. It's still mostly an Orthodox community, but it's 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 no longer discriminating. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, but that's still his base, and it still is a base with an awful lot of powerful connections. So, uh, you know, there was uh, there's some bite back. Absolutely. That, that happens. Wayne Barrett, as always, great to talk to you, man. Thank you so much for spending great. all this time with us. Great to talk to you, Mark. You take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Wayne Barrett, investigative reporter par excellence. The name of his piece, uh, Sheldon Silver's Gang, How Longtime Friends of the Disgraced Assembly Got Power Positions. Jason, we can take a quick musical break. And then I, a couple of stories I want to touch on. Uh, one is about herbal supplements. Not herbal supplements that you get out of here, mind you, but herbal supplements nonetheless. And to vaccinate or not to vaccinate. Let's ask Chris Christie. One minutes before the hour of seven o'clock, we got twenty-one minutes left, and we're going to make the absolute most of it. Our number eight 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 seven four four eight eight eight. Or if you wish to text me, you can at nine one seven eight three zero three zero two three. They will come up as emails in my mail, and I will read them on the air. Eight 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 seven four four eight eight eight. Or nine one seven eight three zero. Three zero two three. Herbal supplements. Now we, are, I have to say right up front, this has nothing to do with what Gary Knowles sells. All right, Gary Knowles stuff is what he says 
it is. Let me be very clear about that at the outset. But apparently, there's some other herbal supplement suppliers that are selling less than snake oil. Have you heard about this, Jason? This is amazing, this story. The Attorney General, Eric Schneiderman, has conducted an investigation. That investigation reveals that herbal supplements being sold at four major retailers, GNC, Walmart, Target, and Walgreens, did not contain the herbs they were purported to contain. DNA testing on products like echinacea, ginseng, St. John's wort, and garlic revealed that just 21, count them, 21% of store brand supplements from those retailers actually contained the plants listed on the label. Now, you want to talk about a criminal complaint against Shelly Silver? <laughs> How about a criminal complaint against people who would exploit folks' desire to live healthier? How about that? I mean, this, this is like, this makes the blood boil, this stuff. Now, because it gets worse, all right? They looked at 13 regions of the state of New York, including Brooklyn, Harlem, parts of Long Island. They found that in addition to many bottles falsely claiming to contain certain herbs, bottles were also chock full of other ingredients, some of which were not a botanical substance of any kind. Not a botanical substance of any kind. Some of the contaminants identified include rice, beans, pine, citrus, asparagus, primrose, wheat, houseplant, wild carrot, and others. In many cases, unlisted contaminants were the only plant material found in the product samples. Now, if you have a food allergy, this isn't just like a fraud. This is actually, it could be life-threatening. You know, you get something with, with nuts in it, something you don't think has nuts. You get a supplement that's supposed to have whatever, and instead they, they you know, inject some kind of nut ingredient. You could go to the emergency room for something like that. Uh, Walmart's ginkgo biloba contained wheat, <laughs> despite a label on the bottle denoting it to be gluten-free. Now, here's the thing. The FDA, I don't understand how herbal supplements are exempt from FDA oversight. What are they doing down there if they're not stopping supplement companies from pulling the wool over innocent eyes? I don't understand this. It is beyond... First of all, it's beyond ridiculous that these people would, because uh, as far as I'm concerned, Jason, this is out now robbery, man. This is robbery. It's ridiculous. And uh, again, let me say this, and, and I, you know, I don't want to sound like a shill or nothing, <laughs> okay? But Gary Null doesn't do this, all right? He's not one of the people that got a cease and desist order from the attorney general of the state of New York. You buy Gary, Gary Null's stuff, you get the stuff that he says is on the label, right? He's not substituting asparagus for some product or pine nuts for some other product. He doesn't do that. Now, again, this is a nonprofit thing we got going on here. 
But, I, you know, I feel comfortable in saying to people, be careful. All right? Be careful. If you want to be sure, there are places you can go where you will be sure, where you'll be able to buy herbal products that are what they say they are. Is that is, is that too much like a shill, Jason? I don't want to sound like a shill, you know. I mean, it's just like, yo, how do you how do you do this? And is a cease and desist order enough? I mean, it may be enough for them not to label garlic as something else or not to label asparagus as something else. I hate asparagus. That's why I keep saying it and harping on it. I can't stand asparagus. But what about the what about some kind of punishment for people who do this? Well, I guess it's it's too much too much like the right thing to do to say, you know what, you do this kind of thing, we're going to throw you in jail. While we are on the subject of uh, interesting stuff with regard to health, uh, you know, Chris Christie, the governor of New Jersey, Jason, I know you heard about this, where he said that he believed that parents ought to have some say in whether or not their kids are vaccinated. And people came down on him like a ton of bricks. Hillary Clinton famously said, the sky is blue and vaccines work. Now, again, this is a controversial issue. It's one that Gary talks about at length, and he knows a hell of a lot more about it than I do. But I do know this. There are people in the media, I repeat, people in the media that try to make this a left-right paradigm. That it's the liberals and progressives that want vaccines, and it's the Neanderthals like Chris Christie who don't. It's not that simple. I was having a discussion with somebody last night about this, as a matter of fact, and it's not that simple. It isn't. There are people in the progressive camp. I know people who have refused to get their children vaccinated for various and sundry reasons. And they're not conservatives. Nobody's going to confuse them with Chris Christie or Rand Paul or some of these other people. They just choose not to have their children vaccinated. California. (laughs) California. A lot of the people out there who don't get their children vaccinated, they're not, you know, gun-toting Tea Party people. They're not. In many cases, they are progressive people. So I, I say that to say that this is not a left-right issue cut and dry. It just isn't. I would commend to your attention a piece written, <clears throat> and I've heard Gary talk about it. It's uh, written by Gary and Richard Gale. It's entitled Vaccine McCarthyism. What if the vaccine paradigm itself is deliberately flawed? Now, Gary's not taking a position simply about whether or not people ought to be uh, vaccinated. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, suppose the whole idea behind vaccinations is itself flawed. That injecting people with small amounts of a virus or, or, or whatever is the best way to immunize them against that virus, which I guess is the basis of vaccinations. Forgive me, I'm not a doctor. I don't know all there is to know about this stuff. But understand that 
he is going back to basics in this piece and saying essentially, hey, wait a minute. How about we look at the science behind the vaccination mania to begin with? It may not be as simple as to say the sky is blue and vaccines work. Which, by the way, you know, Hillary Clinton said that she could well be our next president. So just something to think about. And, you know, Chris Christie uh, is a blowhard who may have pulled the final card in his quest to become the next president of the United States. This, This may be too much for him to recover from, to be honest with you. But that's neither here nor there. That's political stuff. Okay. And, you know, when it comes to politics and medicine, uh, these guys are no brighter than I am. All right. (laughs) Believe me, they are no smarter than moi. I'd love to hear from people who have an opinion about vaccinations. The number is 888-874-4888. 888-874-4888. Give me a call. Or text me. If you don't have time to call, text me. 917-830-3023. 917-830-3023. What's interesting about Christie saying, well, parents should have some saying is, is all his kids are vaccinated. <laughs> okay. Uh, which I guess means, as a parent, he decided to have his kids vaccinated. Is there a huge health risk? If large numbers of people opt out and say, no, I don't want my kids vaccinated. I know a lot of people who have decided not to vaccinate their kids. They weren't allowed to go to school and therefore their parents homeschooled them. For better, for worse, but their parents homeschooled them because they didn't trust the vaccine. Now. Is it a majority? No, it's not a majority. But it's it, it's a group of people that may be growing in number and may be growing in part because they have begin they've begun to listen to people like Gary No and others who question. Because you know, Gary says what if? He doesn't say this is the case unless he knows it to be the case. He says, like, suppose this is the case. What are the ramifications if conventional wisdom about vaccinations turns out to be wrong? Ain't nothing wrong with that. That's called free speech. <laughs> Last I checked. So stay on that. We are. We're going to continue to watch that. But it's it's interesting because that story and the herbal herbal supplement story both touch on Gary. And, and by the way, and I said this before about the herbal supplement, Gary don't play with herbal supplements. He doesn't play with the herbal products that he sells. His products are the real deal. 888-874-4888. Text me, 917-830-3023. Now, the uh, NYPD, you remember them. Just a few weeks ago, they were all over the news about everything. Well, here is the deal with the NYPD. Uh, And again, it it gets to clarifications because after Christie said what he said about the uh, 
vaccinations, his office ran up a whole bunch of stuff. Yes, of course, the governor believes that vaccinations are the way to go. That's all political stuff. Well, even the commissioner of the New York City Police Department has to get on his political bicycle and backpedal just a little bit. Uh, There's a new initiative at the NYPD. Uh, They were uh, uh, planning to start an anti-terrorism unit, which would empower a team of NYPD officers to run around the city carrying machine guns. Uh, But contrary to previous reports, which some people thought came from Commissioner Bratton, they will not be used to police protesters unless the protesters are classified as threats to national security. Bratton now says the specially trained unit of 300 to 350 officers will be used to investigate and combat terrorist plots. They will be outfitted with machine guns and possibly other heavy weaponry. Now, apparently, there's going to be a second unit of police dedicated to dealing with protests. This unit, which, which will go by the name the Strategic Response Group will include about 500 police officers. In addition to monitoring protests, they'll be used to provide additional resources in precincts with sudden rises in crime or when other precincts need immediate backup. So uh, you've got one anti-terror unit and you've got a Strategic Response Group. Two different units to which Bill Bratton says... He was misunderstood when people thought he said that the new unit was one unit and that they would be policing protesters and they would be carrying machine guns, says Bill Bratton. Quote, I may have in my remarks or in your interpretation of my remarks confused you or confused the issue. (laughs) I like that. That that that's that's interesting. Very, very interesting. No laughing matter is the execution of a Jordanian pilot. And from what I understand, were some really, really gross and gruesome circumstances. They set this guy on fire inside of a cage and stood there and videotaped him burning to death, his screams. And in retaliation, the Jordanian government executed two people. One of them a woman. Not that that makes any difference. But, yeah, they executed two people. Jason, why is it I feel like maybe we should just, like, say, okay, what, y'all want to do it? Go ahead. You all do what you want to do. We're going home. Why do I feel that, that, that there's something, that there's a part of me that feels like, you know, if, if this is the level of barbarism that people are going to function at, um, why should we be involved with that? I mean, I, I guess we should be involved with trying to stop it, but to what extent? Unless we're going to go over there in, in overwhelming numbers and stamp them out, all right, put an anvil on an ant and end this this barbarism once and for all, I don't know what else to do. I really don't. It's ugly, and it, it's it's like, The world sees, well, the world doesn't really see it because most news outfits, and rightfully so, don't show this kind of barbarism to American audiences. 
But we know what happened. It's been described graphically. And it cries out for some kind of response. We got to do something or we got to do nothing. One or the other. Now, uh, my to the ridiculous story for this evening, Jason, an interesting one. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to kick Chris, Chris Christie anymore, even though there are uh, a thousand different agencies of government are now looking into all these trips he took on other people's dimes. Chris Christie, it appears, loves to travel, loves to go here, there, and everywhere as long as somebody else pays. He even showed up in an Arsenal football match, which I took personal umbrage about because I happen to be an Arsenal fan. And I see this guy sitting up in the stands. But that's another story. Did anybody tell me, was anybody uh, tell the folks at Arsenal he's a Dallas Cowboys fan too? But that's not to the ridiculous, all right? To the ridiculous actually is kind of uh, ever so slightly related to the story about the NYPD, all right? Although this is a different part of the country. And it comes to us courtesy of our friends at Wonkett. Police in Missoula, Montana are requesting a quarter of a million dollar grant from the Department of Homeland Security so they can buy a, quote, mobile command unit, an RV fitted out with communications equipment and computers and stuff that will be used, among other things, to keep an eye on this year's annual Rainbow Family Gathering, which takes place, I guess, in Missoula. Now, the Rainbow Family Gathering is a gathering of hippies, for God's sake. It's been around for decades, and I guess... Missoula needs a quarter of a million dollars to check them out because they like to smoke weed, they like to get naked, and they like to lay in a big old pile. This is according to the Wonkette. Missoula officials say they need the vehicle to help with emergency responses to natural disasters, accidents like train derailments, and to uh, deal with. And and, uh, the Wonkette alleges that they included all this stuff so that they could get to the top of the DHS pile when it came to who's doling out the money. But they said they wanted to deal with extremist groups like Hell's Angels and the Rainbow Family. Hell's Angels and the Rainbow Family. Now, Hell's Angels are certifiable terrorists, okay? That's, that's how they function. But the Rainbow Family? How about they cut the grant in half and give them half an RV? Give them $125,000, raise the rest of the money, you know, from whomever. I don't care. I just I, I just find this, well, what, what can I say? Ridiculous. As I find a lot of this, you know, military equipment that's going to police, local police departments across the country. You know, you got police departments with 12 people outfitted with howitzers and all other kinds of stuff. Psh, come on. Come on. Uh, speaking of come on, Jason's saying, come on, get out. <laughs> all right. It's time for me to go. My thanks to Jason Taubenfeld. Thanks to Gary Null and all the good people at the Progressive Radio Network. Keep on listening. We'll be back next Wednesday. God willing, the creek don't rise. Have yourselves a great rest of the evening and a better week ahead.